Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to What I Wish I'd Known in association with Speakers for Schools, the youth social mobility charity, which provides inspirational speakers and work experience opportunities. I'm Alice Thompson. And I'm Rachel Sylvester. And in this podcast, we talk to extraordinary people who've lived astonishing lives. Why is it that often the people with the hardest beginnings in life become the most successful adults? And is there something to learn from these people who perhaps have the strongest sense of what matters most? In this series, we'll be speaking to a collection of remarkable individuals about how they achieved success in the face of adversity. Welcome to What I Wish I'd Known. In this episode, we're in News UK's headquarters in London Bridge with best-selling writer Anthony Horowitz. Anthony has written more than 55 books, including the Alex Ryder teen spy series that has sold more than 20 million copies and has been turned into a hugely successful TV series. He's also written scripts for many of our favourite TV shows such as Poirot and Midsummer Murders, and he's a playwright and journalist. But his astonishing drive and creativity, he believes, was born out of trauma. He grew up overweight and undernourished of affection. His parents were wealthy but abandoned him to be brought up by chauffeurs, governesses and at boarding school. Now, my grandmother wasn't tricky, she was just vile. My mother's mother, uh, about whom I wrote a book, Granny, still in print all these years later. And um, she was responsible for a great deal of misery. I've turned her into a joke, even calling her Granny hides the fact that she was a matriarch who had complete domination over my mother, chose largely who she would marry, stopped her following the real love of her life, whoever that may have been, and who throughout her life committed that, that terrible crime of being extremely well-off and comfortable, but utterly selfish. Despite being separated from his alienating family life, boarding school was not much better. Anthony reflects on being bullied by peers and teachers who would be behind bars now if their behaviour around children were reported. Of course these teachers were monsters. The physical violence, the beatings where your legs bled, um, and the and the sort of the, the endless brutality of these teachers who could hit you, punch you, slam your head against the table, or mentally torture you, or just be cruel in, in 50 or so different ways. I mean, it was the undoing of me. It was only when Anthony started making up bedtime stories for the other boys in his dormitory that a light bulb switched on and he found something that he really loved. What did you make of Anthony's early years, Rachel? Well, it was very mixed, wasn't it? Because in a material way, it was very privileged. He grew up in quite a wealthy family, but there was this real lack of emotional warmth and richness. He may have been materially privileged, but he was emotionally very deprived. It sounded extraordinary, didn't it, with sort of chauffeurs and vast cars and very chilly dinners when everyone dressed up in black tie. Not really what you think now, because now he's so approachable and we've met him various times and he's invited us back to his house and our children have come and looked round and he has this rather astonishing room which is hidden and you go through a trap door and it's got a skull in it and it's got all sorts of fascinating objects that children really love. 
I remember them being completely gripped, but also there was something a little bit dark about the fact that there were skulls and I think it was shrunken heads and all these slightly macabre toys behind this trapdoor. And his father was almost this Walter Mitty character who seemed to have created this fake business and then nobody quite ever knew what happened. That period, you know, the, the, his death and then these letters that kept on coming in from banks, Dear Mrs Horowitz, the bank would like to offer you our sincere condolences on the loss of your husband, paragraph one. Paragraph two, you owe us half a million quid. Uh, how are you going to pay it back? That disintegration, the demolition, the sort of, you know, the, the, the loss of everything was extraordinary. What to me was most fascinating is that imagination was really sparked from a place of pain that, and suffering that he was trying to make friends and he was trying to comfort himself almost in boarding school. So he lost himself in his imagination. He wanted to escape the real world to this kind of fantasy world and that's how he started making stories. And the fact that actually at school he didn't thrive and that he wasn't very good academically and that he floundered in exams actually I think is quite inspirational in some ways because you think as a writer you have to do incredibly well at English and you have to be very academic and obviously actually what he liked was creating and making things and that obviously comes from a different place you don't need to have to pass every exam and tick every box in fact I think in some ways it goes against you it takes out some of your kind of drive and creativity. I think of writing like arson an arsonist is very happy to strike a match, even happier when they set fire to a page of paper. But what they really want to do is to burn down London and the world. And I think writing is the same. I want, to, I want the world. In this episode of What I Wish I'd Known, the author Anthony Horowitz tells us his story of how he fought against countless people, including his own father, telling him he wasn't good enough to become one of the most prolific and successful writers in Britain. Anthony was born in North London and he shares with us the first memories he has of his family house. It was called White Friars, it was on the Uxbridge Road and it was enormous. It was like a sort of a miniature Versailles in suburban London, not in that style but just in its size and scope and scale and ambition. Where it stands, there are now 15 five-bedroom houses in a little private close. No. And I have walked past once or twice and seen the the trees that I used to climb and the sort of the bits of grass that are left from where I used to play with my sister. And uh, it, it, it feels only sad. Um, it was incredibly a privileged place to grow up, but in some respects it was, as you might imagine, a bit of a prison too, what Ian Fleming would have called a mink-lined prison. Uh, and uh, it was a lifestyle that really didn't belong in the 20th century, uh, which is when it was. I, it was more 19th century. I remember servants and a gong that rang for dinner. And uh, if you didn't speak well at the table, you were, the famous words, up to the nursery if you couldn't join in the conversation. Uh, and so it was sort of, you know, Edwardian, Victorian, out of its time, strange, a bit loveless, massively privileged. I always, when I talk about my childhood, have to remind myself that people listening will say, what is this guy complaining about? You know, I wouldn't have minded a bit of that. But the funny thing is, I always remind myself that rich children can be unhappy too. What was your mother like? She sounds quite distant and formal. Not at all. My mother was actually the great joy of my life. I mean, she was always very much a supporter of mine. When I announced I was going to be a writer, she was the one who was excited and believed in me. She loved my early books. She died very young, so she never saw my, my sort of 
rise through the charts, if you like. But um, I was very close to her. She used to call me the underprivileged middle child. I had an older <laughs> brother and a younger <laughs> sister. And of course, the truth was the exact opposite, that she indulged me more than anyone. She was also quite eccentric. I mean, witness the, the skull that she gave me for my, I think, 13th birthday, which sits on my shelf. I never know what's more odd, that I asked for it or that she went out and got it, a real human skull, which I've kept to this day. My fondest memory of her is that she would tell me bedtime stories at night. And she didn't read to me. She used to tell me horror stories, hammer horror films. My favourite was The Fly, which is the story of an experiment that goes wrong and a, a man who ends up with the head and I think one wing of a fly. And I'm six or seven years old and I'm lapping up these stories, which of course <laughs> are feeding my future work. Why do you think she was so macabre in some ways? My mother was a sort of a strange person. She also died young, so it's very difficult to sort of summon them up in, in there and to actually understand how and what they were. But she, I think, had a difficult life in some ways in that my father was not her first choice of, of fiancé or to get married to. Uh, but in those days, in Jewish families, the, the daughter really was, was somewhat constrained and directed to marry whom the parents thought suitable. And I'm not sure how happy that marriage was. I suspect it wasn't very, uh, looking back. She was creative and imaginative. I think I probably inherited more from her than I have from my father. I certainly look more like her. But she was also eccentric and and wanting to live a sort of a much more fun-filled life than she had been given. I think she, when she finally did go bankrupt and lose everything, and you know, I mean everything, she lost her house, she lost her, her, her jewellery, her clothes, her savings, and was left with pretty much nothing. I'll never forget her saying to me that that was when she started to be happy. Uh, and certainly her last years, her last 10 years before she, she became very ill uh, and died in, in a very bad way. My memories are all of that time and, and of her happiness then. That's fascinating. And what was your father like? He had a library. He was obviously quite cultured, but also quite a difficult man. I've been measured about him because you're quite right. I mean, you know, my, the, the books that I have even to this day are largely his. I inherited his library, although I did sell, I think, something like 200 books and bought instead first edition James Bonds. I wonder if you'll forgive me for that. <laughs> How old but, were you um, then? Oh, that when I inherited, I, I inherited the books about, gosh, he was 66 when he died, which is to say I'm now older than he was. And um, I guess I was, I was in my 30s that I actually did this wicked deed and uh and which james bond was it what, what i bought right? yeah. i bought four or five oh. i mean because there was a lot of books i sold mm -hmm. four or five uh first editions um but um he was a distant father he was not a cruel man but he wasn't a kind one either i'm not sure that he was an entirely honest man i'm afraid to say i think he was involved in a sort of white collar criminal network uh Nothing that would have put him behind bars if he'd been caught, but certainly in those sort of murky areas of illegality. The one sad memory I have, and the one I will share with you, is his absolute disdain for the idea that I'd be a writer. When I announced that I was writing and that I wanted to be a novelist, he just mocked me completely and tore me apart and made me think that I would never succeed, that what I had done, he stole into my bedroom and, and removed some of my pages to read and um, then mocked them in front of the family. And that's not the mark of a good man. Mark incidentally was his name. And um, I don't want to speak ill of the dead and I don't want to have just bad memories of him. He is my father or was my father. He lives on inside me somehow. But, but I can't say that my memories of him are even 50% benign. It's a very odd thing for a parent to do as well. Was it because he wanted you to be like him and be 
in finance or be a lawyer or do something very traditional? I think he would have liked me to be a businessman. I think he did have a traditional Jewish view that your son should be one of these sort of white collars workers, you know, doctor, lawyer, barrister, whatever, businessman. And um, and the idea of being a writer was strange. But then if you look at my family history, you know, a thousand years, there's never been a writer on the family tree. So I mean, I suppose it was a slightly odd thing to, to, to have as an ambition. But um, as I say, my mother encouraged it. She loved the first books that she read of mine. She always said whenever a villain turned up, but it was based on her, which it wasn't. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and, um, and, and yet my father, who died before even my first book was published, just didn't want to know. Do you think in some ways he might have been jealous of your relationship with your mother? That's an interesting question. I'm not sure that he had a particular relationship with my mother himself, and I'm not sure that he even wanted one. He used to joke, tell jokes about a woman called Madame Claude, and it turned out that she was a major madame in Paris with a, with a, a, a fleet of brothels. And um, whether he was visiting Madame Claude and, and, uh, and actually partaking of her services, or whether it was all some kind of fantasy, I'll never know. Did you go on family holidays together or have trips together? Not to begin with, in the early days, I was sent uh, to Devon, to Instow, uh, with the nanny, or the governess, as she liked to call herself, a lady called Fitzy, who did have a very large role in my life and a, and a very positive one. And then later on, they started taking me to the south of France. Uh, we used to go to Cap Ferrar and to other very expensive holidays. You have to remember that I was born at the time before package holidays. So at that time, to go abroad was actually something of a luxury in itself. And, mm. and I did go to some quite lovely places. And what was your parents' relationship like? How did you perceive it? Do you know, I have no idea. I just don't know. Were they sleeping together? Did they have arguments? Did they row? Were they seeing other people? Uh, were they having affairs? I mean... Were they happy? Were they sad? It was a sort of family where emotions were very much bottled up. You didn't really express what you felt. You know, again, I'll tell you a story I've never told before, which is that I was eight years old and I was hit by a car on my bicycle and knocked off and sort of bruised and damaged, but not badly hurt. I never told my parents. I never told anyone in the family because I was just too nervous and because I knew that I wouldn't get sympathy and sort of, you know, linkages. I would get, I didn't know what. But it's an interesting eight-year-old that happens to yeah. Uh, Is it true? Was your grandmother also very tricky? No, my grandmother wasn't tricky. She was just vile. Um, this is my, my, <laughs> mother's, my mother's mother, uh, about whom I wrote a book, Granny, still mm. in print all these years later. And um, she was responsible for a great deal of misery. I've turned her into a joke, mm. even calling her Granny, hides the fact that she was a matriarch who had complete domination over my mother, chose largely who she would marry, stopped her following the real love of her life, whoever that may have been. There was someone in America, I believe, uh, someone who offered her a job and wanted to, them to be together. Um, and who throughout her life committed that, that terrible crime of being extremely well-off and comfortable, but utterly selfish, utterly unthinking about anybody else, never kind to myself or to my brother or sister, uh, and just a sort of a, someone you feared coming up the drive, which I've written about in the book. Mm. It's so interesting you used her as a template for a character. Do you think that's a way of dealing with pain, that you almost distance it yourself from it by putting them in a book almost as a joke? Well, to an extent, yes. I mean, I often wonder if I had had a completely happy childhood and gone to a school that I loved and been surrounded by relatives who I couldn't wait to see, would I have taken to writing? Because for me, writing was always the escape. Reading books, uh, losing myself in books, and then thinking up stories and living in a fantasy world and not really coping with the world I was in 
was the fuel that I think sustains me to this day. Mm. And the question is, would I swap the stories I'm telling you now for not being a writer? But of course, you wouldn't be interviewing me if I was just a, I don't know, you know, a businessman like my father had wanted, or maybe not. And so the answer is, I think probably I'm quite glad in a way, in some ways, mm. that, that I, I, I went through the childhood that I had. And you went to boarding school really young. That was where you really started telling stories to other people, didn't you? Well, boarding school in North London, in Harrow on the Hill, was five years of utter and complete misery. Soul-destroying. It was the undoing of me. I often think that all the problems I have in life, if I do have problems, the sort of mental, the sort of the, the ones that sort of I don't talk about, all began at that damn school, and that that it turned me into a that it ruined me. That but for my my wonderful wife Jill and and my children and my family, my own family, I was doomed. Actually, uh, she saved me from myself and from what that school had made of me. And to this day, I wonder why my parents, you ask about them, how can you watch your child screaming and crying and begging not to go back to this place and still put them in a car and drive them? It felt like a thousand miles. It was actually more like eight or nine uh, and leave them in this place which was which was a cesspit of cruelty and of of of, of war damaged teachers and and of, of boys who were unable, you know, who had, no, who had learned no social skills and who therefore, I was one of them. I, I, I bullied other kids to survive. And it's, it's just a, a terrible mess. Yes, in answer to the beginning of your question, it, it books, the library, reading, tinted books in particular, became my first escape. Then in the dormitories at night, eight boys to a room sort of thing, telling stories after lights out and discovering that actually AI, the stories were always the same, by the way. They were stories about boys, two boys, Jimmy and Edward, named after a comedian of that time, Jimmy Edwards. You may remember he had a <laughs> handlebar moustache and was popular at that time. Uh, these two boys escaping from the school, having adventures, being chased by the teachers but never caught. I sometimes think I've been escaping all my life since then. But the stories led the other boys to become friendly towards me, which they hadn't been. And it also taught me something that I uh, didn't realise. All the teachers had said I was stupid, I was a waste of time, I was fat, I was going to go nowhere, that I was just unpleasant. They had terrible nicknames for me, which I would not in a million years share with anybody, even now, all these years later. Uh, but the stories, the fact I could tell stories, told me actually... You do have mm. a value. You, there is something in you. And when I visit schools now, it's something I often say, which is there is no such thing in this world as an untalented mm. child. And that the whole secret of life is to find the talent, follow it. Don't let anybody ever stop you doing it. And that that was how I began. And, mm. and so, again, you know, I look back at that school and I think, gosh, wouldn't it be nice to go somewhere lovely? But that school fired me and that fire's still burning. Mm. Of course these teachers were monsters and that, that I should have seen it, but of course I was too innocent and too stupid to know what was happening. The physical violence, the beatings where your legs bled um, and, the, and the sort of the, the endless brutality of these teachers who could hit you, punch you, slam your head against the table or mentally torture you or just be cruel in, in 50 or so different ways. I mean, it was, it was, it was an ordeal. I mean, uh, again, I went back to the school once and went into the school, which is now a modern school. I'm sure it's a fine place. I, I, I have no argument with it now, but, but there's part of the school which is still the same. It's the same buildings. They have, they, I think it's a sort of part of their heritage. They've kept it as it was when I was there. I could even see my old locker, number 64, the headmaster's study, the dining room. 
And I walked in, and I'd, up till then I'd told joke after joke after joke about this place. I turned it in like granny. It had yeah. become a series of jokes in books. And um, I walked into the dining room and had, I can only describe it as a panic attack. I became, I froze, my hands sweated, the room span. I thought I was going to be sick. I thought I was going to faint. And it was only at that moment, goodness knows, 30 years ago, that I realized actually I shouldn't be making jokes about it, but this place had seriously damaged me. And if you kept up with anyone from there, and were you the only one that managed to sort of succeed and get out, really? My old piano teacher came to one of my talks once and started telling me off in front of the entire audience about how I hadn't done something, or perhaps it was my appearance. I can't remember what it was now. But it was just this voice again to an eight-year-old. I wanted to say to her, excuse me, I'm a best-selling writer now. You can't <laughs> do this. But she did. Incredible. And you, you talked about how you were seen as overweight. Was that because you were unhappy? What happened? No, I was. I was a plump little kid. And sort of in those days, you know, when Billy Bunter was still uh, in the bookshops, um, you know, being fat was an insult, you know, and... and, and if you're going to go through the private education system in the 60s, and perhaps even now, you've got to be either clever academically or you've got to be good at sport. That's your survival. I was good at neither, so I was, I was in a mess. I was, even then, the writer, because I should say that at age 10, I was already carrying a, a, a ledger, which I'd stolen from my father or something, which I was writing in. I was writing poems and stories. The first thing I ever wrote, age 10, was a play called The Thing That Never Happened, and it was about um, Guy Fawkes uh, and his attempt to blow up Parliament, the title not one of my best. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> but, but even so, the bug was there, mm. and I was writing from that school and at secondary school and through university, published at 20. So, the, you know, that, that fire was burning very mm. early. And did you take a lot of your characters then from those early days, do you think? I mean, are some of the, the sort of baddies, the villains from that period? I've put pretty much every teacher who taught me that school into my books and plays and TV shows. I've killed every single one of them. They've all died unpleasant deaths in my, in my fiction. <laughs> and, uh, and otherwise, yes, they've, they've, they crop up now and then. Um, I know nobody from that first school, nobody at all. And, um, and that's good. I wouldn't want to see anybody from there again. Lem Sissi, uh, the poet who grew up in a succession of appalling children's homes, he said to us that he, his writing became a way of sort of grounding himself, stopping himself sort of floating away in the pain. Did you? Was it like that for you? It was an escape. It wasn't quite yeah. like that. I've always written fantasy. You know, Alex Ryder, a, a teenage spy, or, or The Power of Five books about children with magical powers um, uh, running away from devils and demons. I've always found that when I'm writing, I'm not in this world. I'm not in the, the world uh, as it really is. And was Alex Ryder in some ways the boy that you wish you'd been or you could have been? Alex Ryder was everything when I wasn't. Mm. The whole point of Alex Ryder was that when I created him, I made him the opposite of me, so no parents. He's living in Chelsea, so he's in a posh part of town, but, but he goes to a comprehensive school, not to a private school. And he has, you know, he's sporty and he likes popular music and he's he's real I mean I I, I wasn't going to create a sort of an Edwardian hero which is would have been you know me as a, if I'd put him in, myself into a book but quite complicated in a way isn't it because it's sort of the person you would have wanted to be in some ways do you think I'm not sure I would have wanted to be Alex Ryder actually mm. the funny thing is is that I'm actually very happy to have been a writer that's all I ever wanted to be and I didn't want to be a spy or a detective or an adventurer I would have been no good at any of those things but um I had one talent, and that's what, you know, 
fate or God gave me. And I'm very happy that, that for 40 years now and more than, well, almost 60 books and so much other work, I have managed to, to keep entertaining people. And you spent hours practising your autograph, didn't you? Did you always want to be famous? I didn't want to be famous in the sense of cameras flashing and heads turning and, uh, you know, money never mattered to me very much, partly because my father had so much of it and what good did it do in me? He died young and bankrupt. But what I did want, I will admit, was to be a very successful writer. Mm. And by that, I mean, I think of writing like arson. An arsonist is very happy to strike a match, even happier when they set fire to a page of paper. But what they really want to do is to burn down London and the world. And I think writing is the same. I want, to, I want the world. You're listening to What I Wish I'd Known in association with Speakers for Schools with Rachel Sylvester and me, Alice Thompson. There'll be more from us just after this. 21 your father died and that was a sort of pivotal moment in your life can you remember being told about it I remember it vividly and it is the opening sentence of Stormbreaker the book that would change my life mm. I'd written 10 kids books with only a moderate amount of success and then came to write the first Alex Ryder book and I remembered very vividly the moment lying in not White Friars and we'd moved up the hill to a house with the faintly hideous name of Tall Chai's, Chai being a poetic name for a chimney. And I remember my father was extremely ill and was clearly with very little time left, and the phone rang. And I remember waking up in bed and hearing the phone ringing. And I can still see the moon striking the bedroom wall. And I can still see the trees outside the window and the stillness of the night. And I knew, lying in bed, that it could only mean one thing. And I also remember thinking to myself, why aren't you sadder? Why aren't you crying? Why aren't you unhappy? What's wrong with you? And the first sentence of Stormbreaker, written many years later, is when the doorbell rings at three in the morning, it's never good news. Mm. And that is based on that memory. It's, the phone has turned into a doorbell. It's still the death, in this case, of Alex's uncle. And when I wrote that sentence... I knew that I'd unlocked something in myself, something different in my books. But this was the first children's book that wouldn't be a children's book. It would have a sort mm. of a, a depth to it, a reality, an honesty, um, a seriousness. And sure enough, Alex Ryder was the beginning of my 
career. So actually, your father may not have approved of your writing, but his death gave you your big break. I wouldn't quite put it that way. I mean, that sounds a little cruel. I didn't sort of think, sit there in bed saying, he's dead, how can I make money out of this? But nonetheless, you, there is a point in what you're saying. Yes, it's, it's never occurred to me before, but I suppose so. Mm-hmm. And before he died, did you talk to him at all? Or did you have any kind of sense of closeness or closure, really? I remember having one walk with him on Bentley Way, which is a series of fields, curiously next door to the Air Force Base in Stanmore in North London, where the Second World War was largely... Uh, one, and which very much inspired Foyle's War. My childhood is inextricably linked with everything that I have done since. And I remember him being, I remember him saying, I'm going to die, you know, that, that he was ill and he was, he, and, he, and time was short. And, and, and he, he told me this as we walked together. He didn't, I think it was perhaps only the first or second time he'd ever come for a walk with me, walking with dogs. And, and I sort of just have a memory of a sort of him trying perhaps to share some kind of fondness, some kind of emotion, some kind of, you know, the fact that he was my father and I was his son. And that's about as far as it went. As I talk to you, it's possible that time has hardened things. You know, that's the trouble with going back and looking at how things were. You sort of focus on what you believe to be the truth. And I, everything I'm saying to you, I believe, is is what is what I believe. But But it may be that he was a kinder, better man than I'm giving him credit for. He had cancer, didn't he? Do you think that changed him at the end? He became more orthodox Jewish. I mean, that's what a lot of Jews do that. They, um, at the very end of their lives, if they suddenly realise that sort of the Grim Reaper is knocking, they sort of perhaps hedge their bets and sort of go for the orthodox funeral, all the rest of it. So that was one change. But no, I mean, he he was ill for a very long time Mm. uh, and not a happy invalid. And and why should he have been? It was awful. His death, like my mother's, was... was, um, was protracted and uh, undignified and everything that he would have hated. He was a very fastidious man. He dressed very well. He was very, he kept himself clean and smart and tidy. And I think illness must have been awful for him. Mm. You know, as I speak to you, I hope that, you, that I'm not giving the impression of, of hating him or disliking him. It wasn't like that. It was, in a sense, wanting more from him and being sad I didn't get it. Mm. And a lot of funerals come up in your books and your pieces. Your father's funeral sounds really bleak. Also, there were no women, were there, there, because it was an orthodox funeral? That's correct. I still have a vision of my mother with her arms around her sisters, waving or or walking behind the car as it sped off with me and my brother to the cemetery. I won't have a funeral like that. In fact, I won't have a funeral. I think just just a bin bag. Uh, Would you really not want a funeral? I dislike funerals. I have a horror of them. They just make me terribly sad. And, and, and I've entered a veil of life now where people are dying around me, friends and people in the, in the media and people I've known and such. And it's, it's a terrible, terrible territory to be entering. Did you cry when your father died or when your mother died? I can't remember shedding tears for my father. But when my mother told me that she had terminal cancer and six months to a year to live... She said in her words, and this is just so her, it's a bit of a bummer, she said. I nodded and um, said, you know, how sad I was to hear it and went out with Jill, my wife, and broke down completely. When your father died, you discovered that there wasn't any money at all left, that the whole thing had been a sham in some Mm -hmm. ways, or that he'd either left it all in Switzerland or hidden it away, or you never found out what had happened, did you? That's correct. There were code 
words and sort of code names and books full of numbers and addresses and figures and this and that. My father, in a strange way, was as much a fantasist as me. I mean, I think that, that you know, there, there were, what was it, the Archduke account? I mean, what was that? We never found out what it was or where it was or what was in it or even if he had had any money. I mean, I should tell you that he'd also sort of taken away all my mother's money. You know, sign this, dear. Um, what am I saying? It doesn't matter. You don't need to know. Just sign it. Well, there went the house. There went her life insurance. There went her own inheritance. There went her jewellery. So, you know, again, when you're asking me about the nature of the man and the marriage, that says something in itself. But uh, that period, you know, the, the, his death and then these letters that kept on coming in from banks. Dear Mrs Horowitz, the bank would like to offer you our sincere condolences on the loss of your husband. Paragraph one. Paragraph two, you owe us half a million quid. Uh, how are you going to pay it back? It wasn't half a million. Instead, it was more like 100,000, but it would be half a million or a million now. That disintegration, the demolition, the sort of, you know, the, the, the loss of everything was extraordinary. But the funny thing is that out of it came good. I think my mother was happier afterwards. I've already said it. It it taught me the value, not so much, you know, it's, it's easy enough to say I don't value money, and that's not true. But it did teach me that, that the pursuit of money for money's sake is always going to end unhappily because there is more to life than that. So so it was, a, it was in some respects a useful lesson. And it also meant that, that instead of, you know, inheriting large amounts, I'm self-made and I'm proud of that. What was he doing? How did he lose all the money? Did you ever find out? Well, a bigger question, I think, is how did he make it? I mean, I don't yeah. quite know where it had come from, if it even existed. I don't yeah. know. But uh, it, it's um, what I think happened was, what we believe happened is that one of his business partners, the moment he heard that my father had died, went to the bank and took it. Probably. Right. But you have no idea. I have no idea, but nor do I care. Mm. What about your brother and sister? Did they mind at all? Well, my sister, I don't think, was much different from me. My brother, who died last year very unexpectedly and suddenly, was different and strange and not very close to me, so I can't even really say what was in his mind. Do you think, in a way, that's why he was so secretive? He was living almost living a double life and sort of this Yes, I think my father, my father was yeah. a bit of a Walter Mitty figure. I think that's mm. what he was. I think he had sort of an idea of himself as sort of a fixer. You know, he was involved very on the periphery of Labour governments at that time. Eric Miller was a politician who was very close to him, and he was part of the Wilson government. And, uh, you know, I think he did see himself as a sort of a, as a serious figure, when actually he was just a sort of a bent solicitor. God, isn't that awful to say? I don't mean that, poor man. I mean, he did good too. I'm sure he did a lot of good. But my own, you're asking my own personal memories, mm, and they mm, are a touch prejudiced. Mm. And you saw the body when he died. Do you regret doing that? Do you yes, think I will never do it again. No one will ever look at me because I've written about death all my life. I mean, it's you know murder stories and you know children's books in which people fall like flies. But the reality of death is beyond anything you can imagine actually, the totality of it, the sort of, the fact that when you die, it's not just you've closed your eyes like an actor in a television show, but that every molecule of you is dead and that every hair on your head looks dead. It's just something you should never, ever see. And that memory, sadly, is my last memory, just as my last memory of my mother. I didn't see her dead, but I saw her horribly close to it. And one of the reasons I have always been very forceful in my beliefs about 
euthanasia and assisted suicide, which is still being debated all these years later, and I don't understand why, is because so much of the joy of my mother's life was taken away from me by the sight of her in those last three months where she was in endless and constant pain and degradation. And if we could have saved her from that, we begged the doctors to give us something that would um, help her to, to, to just, you know, pass on, which was not allowed. And I cannot, for the life of me to this day, understand why that should still be the case. You're also quite fascinated by death and your books are quite dark in places. And actually a lot of children's, the best children's books are. Going back to fairy tales, there is a dark side. Why do you think you are so fascinated? Do you think that actually makes the best kind of children's book? I'm, I would argue that I'm not fascinated by death, actually. No, I don't think I am. Yes, I have the human skull, but even that's nothing to do with death. That's more to do with the fact that the skull is the cockpit of the brain, that it's like the rocket ship in which we travel. And I'm interested in the sort of, you know, in, in, in that. Death is part of my work, but only because... In a murder story, the murder is all about life. The murder is about why people hated each other, why one person wanted to do harm to another. Murder is about character. Murder is about human emotion at its most extreme, which is what makes it interesting. The actual method of the death itself, the crossbow bolt in my latest book, or the bullet or the knife or the strangulation or all the other methods one sort of fixes upon, they're just incidental. And, you know, in, in shows like when I was working on Midsummer Murders, you know, the murders became a little bit extreme and almost comical. But that was the nature of the show. It wasn't because of any sort of obsession of mine. And with James Bond, I mean, it was a sort of cult, wasn't it? I mean, it still is, but back then in the 70s, 80s, I remember my brothers were totally and utterly obsessed by the next James Bond coming out. Did you read the books first? How did you get so obsessed by him? That's back to school again. I was, I think, 10 years old when Dr No came out in the cinema and was blown away by it because it had everything in it that I didn't have in my life, including good weather, good food, travel abroad at that time, um, and glamorous women, women, obviously, glamorous <laughs> women, yes, um, and, and excitement and adventure and coolness and cigarettes and all the rest of it. It was like a sort of a, an explosion of sunshine into the shadows. And so after having seen the film, I began to read the books and loved the books from sort of 10 into sort of 15, 16 and on. I uh, loved it to this day. You also had some other kinds of jobs, didn't you, after your father died? So you were a waiter, an abattoir worker even. I was um, briefly an abattoir worker. Okay. What is rather odd is that after secondary school, I got a grant from the school to go away for a year, and I decided to become a, a jackaroo in an Australian cattle station. And I did it in the belief that I had been educated in the best way that money could buy for 10 years, but had learned nothing about life but I needed to test myself and give myself adventure and experience and do something that was completely alien to me. So, for example, I had never ridden a horse, and on my first day on the cattle station, I'm given a saddle. I don't even really know what it's for. <laughs> uh, and I had to learn everything. How to? I'm the only writer you'll ever meet, I suspect, who knows how to turn a cow or a bull into every single steak using a pot. <laughs> uh, I've done it. And... Um, and I had a year of incredible adventure and then travelled back overland, a journey which nowadays would be impossible. Iran, Iraq, Afghanistan. I spent two weeks in Kabul, I remember. Lovely city in, in my mind and in my memories. And I had experiences along the way that were eye-opening and, and important to me and um, made me a better writer. I always say to young people who want to write, go out there, have experiences do something illegal, don't get caught. You know, just, just live life because you can't 
you know, I can't sit in a room writing about sitting in a room. Mm -hmm. I can't write about my childhood and, and, and these schools and, you know, and a wealthy upbringing. It'll get boring very quickly. So, you know, getting out there and traveling was, was, was important to me. And in some ways, that is what your parents gave you, that you, you actually went and traveled. I mean, now, in a way, do you think children are too cosseted that you probably would have had your parents constantly texting and WhatsApping you, finding out what you were doing in Australia and whether you're OK? And It should be easier now, but of course, they couldn't contact me at all in those days. Um, these days, wherever you are in the world, you're, you know, you can Zoom, you can FaceTime, you can whatever it is you're going to do, you can stay in touch. But, you know, I... I am I'm grateful to my parents for, for, for giving birth to me and for investing the money they did in my education, you know, the, certainly in the sort of the, the building blocks of my education. But that's as far as it goes. I don't see that they steered. I think that I when I said to you earlier that I'm proud of being self-made, I don't just mean in terms of money. I think that what I've done in my work, I hope, is has come maybe in part from, from Jill, from my wife, who has you know, been by my side for the most important part of this journey, but, but, and who has, you know, been so much the saving of me, that, but not my parents. No, I, I, I refuse to, to, to acknowledge them in the, in the, in the forward to this book. And you published your first book when you were 22. Can you remember what you spent your first paycheck on? It wasn't very large, my first paycheck, <laughs> I recall. Um, Just paying off the bills. Uh, no, I think I took my mother out for dinner. I remember that. She was so excited when this came in. And it was, you know, it wasn't so long after my father had died and she needed it. And I remember I also bought her some nice things that she needed for the smaller house she had moved into. So that's probably the answer. I bought stuff for her. And have you ever had any therapy or do you feel that if you had therapy, that would then, in a way, sort of, you'd lose the spur that you had as a child? I'm terrified of therapy. I will never go near it. There was one occasion during COVID, I got very, very low and felt a need to get help. I was really depressed. And I did see a therapist twice. I hated it. I thought it was a total waste of time and I, I became quite angry about it even and, um, and stopped going. But, but, but you're right in your question. I think the therapy, my books are my therapy. Therapy just unpicks who I am and how I think. I've said it already, I am my books. You know, me, the sort of the, the life I've had and one which is sort of now entering a sort of a end game, sort of, is irrelevant. Well, all that I care about is what I've written. There's a really interesting sort of balance, I think, that we think about a lot with people we interview between whether you prefer to be happy or successful. Do you feel now that you're, you are happy with your family or do you think actually the success depends on being a little bit unhappy? And can you be both? What a tricky question. I love my family and I'm very happy with them. I became a grandfather recently and although I have some doubts about that, it's sort of, <laughs> you, can't look at, you can't look at the little thing and not, not smile. And I'm happy with my work and my writing. As to the rest of it, when I was young, I used to think that there was a golden gate. When I was not successful, I used to think that there was a golden gate you could pass through. And on the other side of this golden gate was success. And on the other side, people would know who you were. You'd meet famous people. You'd, um, you'd go to amazing parties and first nights and, and, uh, and, and that life would change and you would be happy and, and, and full of yourself. I was wrong. Those golden gates do not exist. There is not another side. There is just a continuation. And I often say again when I'm talking to, to writers that, that 
I started life in a, in a room on my own writing. 40 years later, I'm still in a room on my own writing. The only difference is that the room is slightly bigger and it's got a nicer view. <laughs> what is success? Success is just simply being able to support myself through my work and knowing that people like my work and and that, that, that I hope that I can continue my work. And, and yes, in, on that level, I'm very happy indeed. So if no one read your books, would you still feel an urge to write, do you think? Absolutely. There's nothing that would stop me writing. Wouldn't be so much fun. And did you feel strange when you overtook your father's life, when you know, he, he died and you're now older than he was when he died? There's nothing good about old age at all, and I don't like it. And I still think to myself that somewhere here there's an 18-year-old looking in the mirror and screaming. Um, but I do not mm. ever think about my parents. And when you're bringing up your own children, or have been in the past, do you deliberately set out to be a different kind of father? How, how do you compare yourself to your father? My favourite poem is the Philip Larkin one about, you know, they muck you up, your mum and dad, which I have gently censored for Times Radio. <laughs> um, but, um, and, and so, you know, they, they fill you the, with the faults they had and add some extra just for you, all that. Um, I have tried to be a different parent. I don't want my children to... to enter you a studio where they're interviewed by someone like you in 30 years' time and say about me the things I've been saying about my parents. Uh, they probably will, but I, but I would like it if they didn't. Uh, I have tried to be open with them. I think there are no secrets. I think if, they, if you ask them, what is my relationship with Jill, they will be able to answer it. And I have involved them in everything I've ever done, and I have never, ever once traduced them or mocked them for anything that they have wanted to do. I'm enormously proud of both of them. My older son, uh, with his own business and, and a very successful business, employing a dozen people or more, and, and my younger son, as I'm sure you know, at the heart of government, they are both extraordinary people, and I am more proud of them than almost anything in my life, of course. Actually, I think I've been a pretty good father. I think they've been very lucky to have me uh, behind them <laughs> and, and supporting them. And, and they should thank their grandparents, whom they never really met. Actually, Cass never met either of them. They should thank their grandparents because that's the stimulus that has made me into a better parent. And do they read your books or are they the kind of children that actually, you know, didn't want to read them, wanted to get on with life? They were supportive from the start. They not only read the books, they were the books. Mm. You know, it's harder to write Alex Ryder when you don't have a 13-year-old in the house. Mm. And, um, you know, both the boys helped me. Cass was the most brutal critic a father could ask for um, and, and always write. And Nick acted the books. He was the first person to act as Alex Ryder on the screen for, I think, Blue Peter. Uh, Is that uh, right? Yeah, years <laughs> and years ago. Cass appears in the first episode of... Um, Foyle's War, both of them appeared as hostages with their nanny in an episode <laughs> of, of Crime Traveller. But they didn't and want to be actors then? No, there was never any thought of that. But it was. Just, but I think they were happy to... sort of cameo role almost. To do what I do, just mm. turn up and do a cameos. We are and remain a very, very close family. And, and that, to me, is, now I think about it, as much of a success as, my, uh, as having written all these books. But is it right you sent them to boarding school? I didn't send them anywhere. They went to a local prep school, so for primary school, and after that, we talked to them about them going away to board because North London had so many problems. My, my older son, Nick, was very, very sporty when he was 13 years old, and I didn't like the idea of him having to sit on a bus to go to a, to go to a football pitch. He needed space. Uh, so in collaboration with him, we sent him, in your parlance, to, to, <laughs> to, a, to, a, to a private school, and Cass followed, 
we moved to be nearer to them and saw them every weekend. And they got bored with me asking, are you happy? Are you all right? <laughs> I mean, it's, you know, et cetera. And, and they were happy and it was all right. And the, the school did very well for them and, and, and did the one thing that schools should do, which is to provide them with the inspiration and, and you know, the, and the ambition to succeed. But did you feel at all sick then when you dropped them off for yourself in a way? The funny thing is, uh, I was very for them going, but we felt very sad when they had gone. Yeah, I wasn't, I wasn't distraught. It's changed so much. You know, we saw them every weekend. We, you know, Jill and I often say that what their childhood was, we had all the happiest bits. We had the easiest bits. We didn't have the get out of bed and do your homework bits. And do you think you're fascinated by the sort of intrigue and subterfuge partly because of your childhood? I mean, it is amazing that your father lived that life and you never quite got to the bottom of what he did. It's a bit like being a spy trying to work it out. Alex Ryder came out of James Bond, look out of my father. That's where he starts. And if you look at my early books, the first nine books I wrote, The Switch uh, and um, many others, Gruesome Grange, and Granny, they're all about me. They're all about rich kids, grim parents, horrible schools, exaggerated cruelty and unhappiness. And none of them really succeeded. It was only when I dropped all that baggage, when I started writing about a boy, Alex Ryder, who was nothing like me, who belonged to a completely different world, that the, the, the ignition happened and the career took off. So it's the opposite mm. of what you asked. Mm. It was losing it all that was a, was a key to my success. And Alex's name came from Dr. Honey Ryder. Alex came from the son of a friend of mine, a very dear friend of mine who uh, was nine or ten years old and came for lunch at the time when I was writing the book, and his name was Alex. Ryder came from Honey Child Ryder, who is the love interest in Dr. No. And is she your favourite Bond heroine? She is the mother of Alex Ryder, so yes. <laughs> and which is your favourite Bond film, or which do you think is the best? Probably from Russia with Love I think is the greatest of all the Bond films the one that's my favourite is Goldfinger I'm going back to the Sean Connery era of course because that's when they meant so much to me uh, but, but those are my two favourite Bonds and would you want to have a female Bond who would you like to play the next Bond that's a loaded question and it's one which I've learned through bitter experience never to answer <laughs> uh, but I will say that a female Bond is, is not needed because when I was in my teens there was a character called Modesty Blaze who is the female Bond and what I would love to see is Modesty Blaze on the screen. Peter O'Donnell wrote the books. Very, very good. They were, we all read them in the family. We loved them. So a parallel series rather than... Yeah, a, I think the yeah, idea of making Jemima Bond female Bond. is just going to, to please nobody at the end of the day. And it takes away from the sort of what that character is all about. No woman would want to be Bond, I think. Um, uh, so, and, and Barbara Broccoli has quite rightly said, the producer of the Bond films, that it's not, you know, that is not under consideration. But as to who plays Bond next, assuming they can put him back together again after having blown him into a yes. million pieces, <laughs> um, anyone, anyone. I mean, you know, I, I look forward to it. One of the things that I will say is there's never been a bad Bond. They've all been brilliantly cast. Well, why are we still so obsessed by James Bond? Because it's almost the longest running obsession the British have in a film, isn't it? That it, more than the carry-on films, everything else is dated more. Somehow particularly men in Britain, are completely wrapped up in this one character. 
It goes back to the war. It goes back to visions of this country at its best. It goes back to a type of Britishness that we have lost, but which we still linger, uh, you know, which we still have a nostalgia for. I think it goes to a political incorrectness that we all sort of rather like, even if the modern bond has been slightly, you know, uh, revised. Um, the, the sort of the womanizing, hard drinking, smoking character is still, you know, somehow daring and dangerous. And it goes back to the genius of Ian Fleming, who created such a wonderfully sort of realistic, if fantastical character, who carries in him a sort of a testosterone filled, masculine, crusading, successful, immortal view of the world and, and physicality that who wouldn't want to be Bond? You're right, though, it's very politically incorrect. Do you worry about that whole cancel culture when you're writing? So do you, you know, think twice about cultural appropriation? Have you changed the way you create your characters? Yes, of course I worry. I think it is very... I think we live in very, very worrying times for writers like myself where you cannot write if you have to take a breath before you find every single word. You cannot write in fear. And you should, writers should not be following an agenda. They should be setting it. And the idea that we should fold ourselves into, into, a, into a system, a set of rules, a sort of a, a, a way of seeing things that will change is nonsensical. And the answer to your question is, yes, I do worry when I'm talking to you. I have to measure my words now. When I go to festivals, I always have to take a breath before I answer a question. I find some of the sort of extremes of cancel culture, as it is known, to be deeply depressing and, and damaging and negative and, and mistaken. Uh, but I also have to remind myself that it is no longer my world. I am exiting it, not immediately, but in the near future. And if the next generation wishes to grow up with all these rules and fears and 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 this narrowing of focus and this, this treading on eggshells, if that is the life they want for themselves, so be it. That's their choice. But I'm glad I haven't had to live with it myself. So is it stopping you from writing in some ways? Do you feel more worried about having a female protagonist or do you feel... You have to now write from your own experience. I think Susan Ryland, who is the protagonist in uh, Magpie Murders and Moonflower Murders, is my best character. She's being portrayed by uh, Leslie Manville at this very moment. We're filming it, and she is wonderful, and I love every single thing about her, and I didn't have a moment's doubt about writing the character, and I'd go further and say it's one of the characters I have most enjoyed writing. It's actually a liberation to, to write in her mind and with her perspective. So no, I don't have any fear about that. I do have concerns about issues of ethnicity or issues of politics, generally speaking, gender politics in particular, uh, which I will not enter into conversation about or will not write about. And I think that's a shame, but that should be the case. But it still leaves an awful lot that I can write, and I prefer to stay there. So it's almost as if you have to self-censor. I've been self-censoring all my life. I mean, I have to. If you're writing for young people, you're always self-censoring. That's interesting because actually you're, I think your books are quite challenging in a, in a good way. They're not... You don't pander to children. That's a different issue. Of course not. I mean, the books... Yeah. Are, I've always said I don't write children's books. I write adult books for kids. Mm. But... You know, I, I, I won't use profanities in a children's book. That's a self-censorship, simply because... Actually, I don't use them in adult books anymore now either. But... um. That's self-censorship because there's enough ugliness in this world. Why mm -hmm. add to it? Mm. And if you can write a sentence, you know, where you use a swear word. But if you then take the swear word out and look at the sentence, you'll find actually it doesn't change it one jot. Mm. And do you still ever think of yourself back in that dormitory talking to everyone else and, and giving them those ideas and stories? And 
Do you still see yourself no, very much as a storyteller? You don't. I never look backwards. I look forwards. I look towards the next book, towards writing a better book, to write towards writing. I don't know something that hasn't been done before, towards entertaining people in a new way, and 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 always challenging myself and finding new things to do. I don't sit. You once said that in a world where everything seems to be uncertain, writing is the only certainty I have. Do you still feel that? I think more than that. I think within a world in which truth has almost disappeared and which post-truth and half-truth and conspiracy theory and social media and such things make it almost impossible to know the truth about what is happening at any one time. Fiction has become more important than ever because it, it is paradoxically the one place where you find truth. You write a murder mystery, what happens at the end? The killer is revealed, the community is healed, um, the, the uh, life, is, life is repaired and goes on in a better way. Mm. And I think that's probably one of the reasons why during COVID and since then, crime fiction in particular has spiked because it is, at the end of the day, uh, the one place where you can find truth. Mm. And did you ever imagine that you would be this successful? It never occurred to me that I would be anything other than what I now am, because that was all I wanted to be. Mm. But except I'd like it still to be better. <laughs> and what do you wish you'd known looking back to that eight-year-old boy in the dormitory at boarding school? I wish I'd known that life always gets better. Or well, no, that's not true, because it's not true for all people. I wish I'd known that my life would get better. I wish I'd known that the unhappiness I was feeling then would, if not disappear, would at least be manageable. And that it, you could actually absorb it and just accept it and, and, and just deal with it. I wish that I had learned more about the importance of kindness and goodness and, and entertaining people and being... And, and I wish I'd learned that what I had to offer. I wish I hadn't been so put down and ready to accept that just because somebody in a teacher's hat can tell you that you're useless, that you are useless. I wish I'd had a, a view of authority then that was actually, you know, this reviewer who says my play is no good, or this teacher who tells me I'm never going to be a decent writer, or this father who thinks I'm an idiot. But they're actually wrong, and that I, that I will beat all of them, and that I will keep going, and that they can't stop me. I wish I'd learned that earlier, that above all. You've been listening to What I Wish I'd Known in association with Speakers for Schools, the youth social mobility charity that provides inspirational talks and work experience opportunities with Rachel Sylvester, Alice Thompson and our guest today, Anthony Horowitz. The series producer is Anya Pierce. If you enjoyed what you heard, why not pick up a copy of our book, What I Wish I'd Known When I Was Young? Or you can follow the podcast so you never miss an episode. And of course, you can listen back to all our previous episodes on the Free Times Radio app or download them from wherever else you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.